In two rounds, I asked our panelists to first look back on 50 years of European foreign policy cooperation and to reflect on two questions. First, what are the main achievements of European foreign policy cooperation in the past 50 years? And second, if the EU is still a peculiar foreign policy actor, what are the three aspects that make the EU different? In the second round, I asked our panelists to look forward and to assess for us if the EU is fit for purpose as an international actor in the years to come. Thanks for your interest and we hope you enjoy our round table. Not notice, uh, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here and as you said, I'm, I'm of course not coming from an, uh, from an academic perspective but from a practitioner's perspective. I, I joined the Austrian Foreign Ministry in November 94 which was two months before Austria, Sweden and Finland um, became EU member states and of course it was just after Maastricht and uh, common foreign and security policy was very much uh, high on the agenda. Uh, so I followed that for all my time in the Austrian Foreign Ministry and specifically in the last three and a half years until July I was in the EU Political and Security Committee. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the committee comprised of uh, 28 ambassadors, uh, each member state has one, and uh, we sort of try to coordinate uh, common foreign security policy. We try to uh, iron out uh, differences, uh, uh, finding positions. We try to control the institutions a bit, uh, uh, often in vain. And, and, uh, and of course, we, try, we, we, we prepare the Foreign Affairs Council, which is basically once a month. Uh, uh, so it's an extremely interesting forum where you um, get a very good view on the foreign policy perspective of member states across the whole range of issues. Uh, so I really had a very, very um, nice front row seat for the last uh, uh, three and a half years. And in all the time in, 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 in Brussels, my emotions about common foreign security policy were torn. On the one hand, of course, uh, I continue to be an ardent believer and think it's extremely important and really, really uh, uh, brings added value and is probably more important now than it ever was. And at the same time, being deeply fr uh, frustrated uh, that uh, with all the shortcomings that we don't actually put the weight that we have uh, as uh, uh, 28 member states, we don't tr translate this well enough into 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 uh, political action and foreign policy weight, basically. So there's this, uh, um, it's important, it's added value, but of course a lot could be done a lot better. Um, so sort of your, your first question, does it matter? I think absolutely, it's extremely important, it matters more than ever. If you look at the global uh, picture and the um, sort of disintegration of uh, uh, global structures, of multilateral structures, of the sort of rules-based world order that was constructed since the Second World War, which is, I mean, that's, at the, that's the heart and soul of the European Union and of the common foreign and security policy. We are a rules-based organization and we like to work through multilateral cooperation and we are, of course, ourselves a multilateral uh, Institution. So it's in the gene pool of the European Union and given that this is really challenged and of course we all know the, um, the reasons why and the protagonists that pushing this, the cooperation, the sort of example of working through con consensus, trying to find a common way forward through multilateral cooperation is extremely important. So I think 
answer, does it matter? Yes. And then on the question, uh, what are the main achievements? Looking back, I think it's easy to it's easy to focus on the things that are going badly, and it's also news is more is better news when it's bad news, and it doesn't even become news when it's good news. I think if you really look across the range of issues, a really really significant uh, success of the common foreign security policy is that, on the whole, you see increasing convergence, a sort of shared analysis of foreign and security policy challenges uh, and, uh, and, and an increasing overlap of positions. Now while that happens and in fact represents 90-95% if you look at the policy areas, those areas where this is not the case, they become much more visible, they become amplified. Um, but I think a a really big achievement is actually this overall trend of convergence, which is important, of course, if you look at the EU as a peace project, uh, if you have a shared foreign policy and security policy analysis, or if you're in a work in progress towards a shared analysis, that's very important also from, the, from this uh, um, peace perspective. Um, so. I think this is this is a this is this is a really important um, uh, um, gain and added value that uh, the corporation has brought since since it started, and of course it accelerated in the in the last uh, 20 years. In sort of in terms of concrete um, uh, um, con concrete gains, con concrete achievements which is sort of not directly foreign and security policy, but indirectly it is, I think, the enlargement process on the whole, um, with the focus on reforms, with bringing more countries into the orbit of this shared um, value system and, of course, also shared um, uh, foreign and security policy analysis. That's a very, very uh, Important aspect, and then I would, I would, I would, uh, I would repeat that at the moment, the focus on multilateralism and uh, defending uh, the rules-based uh, um, order is extremely important. And what we really saw, uh, interestingly, in the last few years, um, uh, more and more, did it happen that other regional groups uh, from Latin America to Asia, are really to Africa, are really looking to the European Union because they actually see the EU as the key defender of this system and they want to cooperate uh, with us. We are not very effective in doing that, but uh, um, I think we also have to be aware that we focus very much on our internal differences and on the weaknesses, but actually um, there are lots of actors out there who look at the EU still as an inspiration and still as a unique accomplishment of uh, cooperation among states. Um, second question, if we are, the EU is uh, still a peculiar foreign policy actor and what are the aspects? Of course, we are very <coughs> unusual as a foreign policy actor. That, that, um, we have a very mixed composition. We have big and small member states, we have east-west divide, we have north-south divide on some issues, there's rich and poor, there are net contributors to the budget, net uh, recipients to the budget, there are NATO member states, there are non-NATO member states, so there are many 
inbuilt challenges and inbuilt contradictions in part as well, which we're trying to overcome, which of course makes us an, an, an unusual foreign policy actor. Um, then there is the, it's difficult for us to act strategically, because of course the first step to, um, to come to a common foreign and security policy is that we have to coordinate internally. And then on the difficult files, on the ones that are in the public perception, there will be different views with, with quite uh, a high degree of, uh, of uh, nuances. So if we actually achieve a common position, it's a compromise, which of course in itself is a very good thing, but it doesn't make us then an effective actor because we are constrained by having achieved a compromise, which of course is then very difficult in, 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 in international fora to sort of act tactically, act uh, strategically. I've myself experienced on several occasions that um, in multilateral negotiations that the EU was still negotiating internally while the negotiations had actually already moved on. And that is, that is uh, it's of course, it's in reality, it's wonderful that we're trying to find a consensus, and if we have one, it's worth something. But of course, in a dynamic uh, uh, negotiation environment, for example, it can be, it can be um, a problem, it can be difficult. And then I would also say, um, and maybe then my time is up, um, one, one peculiarity is, of course, uh, um, not everybody actually wants a common foreign security policy. I would say um, certainly the bigger actors in the EU, and here I would specifically point to the UK and France, both members of the security, permanent members of the, of the Security Council, don't necessarily always want the EU to be a strong foreign policy actor because of course in their own perspective foreign and security policy that's something for the big guys. That's in the Security Council. So I would say quite frequently we've seen that France, for example, acts very pro-common foreign security policy when it overlaps with the French national interest. <coughs> when it's perceived as not overlapping, it can become a lot more difficult. I think UK also very often was a bit more de detached, uh, maybe not so hands-on as France, but uh, maybe also not so interested uh, as, 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 uh, as uh, um, maybe some of the smaller member states. And then, of course, we have these formats, uh, E3, the Quad, the Quint, which is also important in many ways because the Iran nuclear deal, for example, was achieved by the um, uh, three biggest member states. But they actually didn't tell the other member states that they were doing it. So from a, from a, from a sort of common foreign security policy point of view, it was an important uh, step to do, but from an ownership point of view, it created a lot of uh, uh, issues, and we see trends now um, of sort of bigger member states working more together, which creates a lot of resentments or question mark among the smaller member states in terms of ownership uh, of the whole process, so these are sort of big challenges. And to conclude, um, it's a work in progress. I would say the overall trend is important and is positive with lots of challenges and lots of things that should be improved, uh, which is then part of the second round. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, 
one observation that we had at one of the previous practitioner academic roundtables that we had was that the practitioners always seem to be a bit more positive than the academics, <laughs> so always we're a bit more the gloomy ones in the room. So I think quite an interesting starting point that helps us to look from the inside, especially from the Brussels machinery, and assess why does it matter, but also where are the challenges, and maybe where we have to be clear on what expectations we have. I'm now handing over to Ben Tondran. I'm very, very much looking forward to looking from the outside in, so either from the view of Dublin, or if you want to go further from the global perspective, would you share the positive assessment? Ben, the floor is yours. Thank you very much again for the invitation. Um, you're very lucky to have Heidi. She's a force of nature um, um, and, and a fantastic colleague and scholar. Um, the first question that, that I'm looking at um, also dates me. In as much as I began looking at this stuff, um, for those of you who are students here, uh, round about your stage in 1986, um, looking at the Single European Act. So that's where I cut my teeth, on Title Title Three of what was then the Single European Act and what was introduced as European political cooperation, or formalized as European political cooperation. And if you apply any kind of historical perspective to where we were and where we are, you can be blown away by what has been achieved and what has been accomplished and what has been done. Now, you can see that in negative terms or positive terms, but nonetheless, you have to acknowledge uh, the, the distance that's been traveled. Um, I think there are four things that, that looking back, I think, um, are the main achievements of European foreign policy cooperation. The first of those is, is the creation of a, what I would call a genuine community. Uh, one of the first writers in this field, Philippe Descoutetet, who was a, a former colleague of yours, of, of, of many long years standing, um, spoke about European political cooperation as creating a community of information, which would lead to a community of views, which would ultimately lead to a community of action. And I think, I think that has been accomplished. There is a genuine community that has been created amongst the member states of the, of the now European Union. Um, and that community is based on the second principle, which I think is a main achievement uh, of political cooperation, foreign policy cooperation, and that is uh, what another former practitioner analyst referred to as the coordination reflex. That member states genuinely now look at the world, look at events in the world, look at the, uh, the evolution of global politics, and refer to one another as a base point of their own analysis. What do our partners think on this issue? Country A invades country B. What do our partners think? What is the consensus? What, what are the views? What can everyone tell us about what's going on? And that, I think, is a very intrinsic and very basic uh, change and shift that has happened um, over, a number, uh, over a number of years. I think the third main achievement is the creation of what Brian White referred to as, as a foreign policy system. A foreign policy system that encompasses member states, domestic interests, foreign policy machinery at the national level, foreign policy machinery now at the Brussels level, and the whole infrastructure um, at both the EU and national levels. Now, it's an incredibly complex infrastructure, uh, and I'll come back come on to, to why that is in a moment. Um, but one quick anecdote to, 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 to illustrate both the complexity of the system and where we've come from. Um, at about your, uh, your career level, I was a, I was a bright, ambitious PhD student uh, working in a particular member state who was then holding the presidency of the European communities as it then was in the 1990s. And I got a call one day from, from the foreign ministry of said member state saying that there was an event in Paris called a Track 2 Dialogue, Euro-Asia Dialogue. Uh, and as a presidency holding country, they needed somebody to chair the European delegation uh, at this meeting in Paris. Now, I mean, I, was, I, was I bowled over? Was I, was I impressed with myself? 
um, phenomenally. So in all naivete, I called said foreign ministry back, and I said, well, can I speak to some people on your Asia desk to find out you know, what, 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 what's the line? What's the policy brief? What am I meant to be arguing? What am I meant to be saying? Um, well, the first point of, of reflection was there was no Asia desk. There was a half-time Asia person. And that half-time Asia, per Asia person was doing many other things at the same time. And when I finally tracked him down, um, I was told there was only one rule. There was one policy thing that had to, be, had to be maintained at all times. And that was, I had to hold the chair. My partner in the EU delegation was coming from the Commission, mid-ranking senior official with lots of experience on EU-Asia relations, um, but she was not allowed to hold the microphone. I was to sit there in the chair, as now here, holding the microphone to her for the entire day and a half of deliberations of that Track 2 dialogue simply to maintain the position that I was the presidency and she wasn't. Now, how far we've come from that point? A small anecdote, but I think an illustrative an anecdote of how that foreign policy system has evolved over time. The final thing I would point to in terms of looking back um, uh, and main achievements is refers to, to an article that, uh, that Richard and Ian Whitman uh, wrote uh, many years ago, which, is, which has stayed with me since, which referred to the European Union as a difference engine. That there was something unique, something different, something very special about the European Union, about what it was doing with and to member states, and more particularly, what the Union was doing in the world, what it aspired to do in the world. And that this was unique, it was different, and it was part of the, the ambassador has, always, has already mentioned, that the very DNA of European construction. And that, those elements, to my mind, community, the coordination reflex, the, far, the very complex foreign policy system, and this notion of the EU being different and making a difference, I think are the, are the main achievements uh, looking back from at least my time with the Single European Act. Um, the second question, the European Union is still a, foreign a peculiar foreign policy actor? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you'll forgive my language, and I, and I apologize for it, but I use it deliberately with my students to provoke a reaction. You know, the European Union is the bastard child of diplomacy and democracy. There is nothing else like it in the international system. It is a unique entity. It is neither a state, nor an international organization, nor, I would argue, is it a state in the making. It is a very unique and different kind of construction. It is not a sovereign power. So when I, for example, hear very loose talk, about people talking about a European army, or even an army of Europeans, depending on the translation, um, I recoil, because the Union cannot be that. The Union is not that, and I don't think the Union will ever be that. It is not a Westphalian animal. And to speak of the Union as a Westphalian animal, to impose expectations on it that it would act as a Westphalian animal, I think are fundamentally and profoundly misplaced. The European Union, and, and what I would further go on to say is, that it is, the very, is the European Union's very liminality, its very difference, its very sort of interspatial position between our traditional understanding of what a nation state is and what is an international organization that gives it both unique strengths and unique weaknesses. And if you couple that with another aspect, which I think makes the EU different, it is again comes back to this notion of ambition. Now, whether or not the European Union can really be a transformatory actor, can, can contribute to the transformation of the international system, that may be hubris. But the Union does have that stitched into its DNA in a way that I don't think any other international actor has. And here I would intersect 
with the ambassador's comments about, about commitment to multilateralism. It is, it is the raison d'etre of the European Union to be that kind of animal and to defend that in the international system. And that, to my mind, is a unique strength that makes the European Union very and profoundly different. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, I think it gave us also a very good, good overview of where we are coming from and what are the, some of the special aspects that we can't forget when we talk about European foreign policy. Because indeed, I think many of us make the mistake that we try to compare it to the usual things out Suspects. there. Mm. So I think that really was a very good reminder. Mm. Richard, from your perspective. Thank you very much, uh, Heidi. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the invitation and also, I think, for the encouragement to, to think about the, uh, the long durée of uh, European uh, foreign policy cooperation. And I want to start with the past uh, or, and, and wind things all the way back, uh, if I may, uh, because it's very striking that you know when this when this process of of sort of doing or even thinking about doing collective foreign policy uh, kicked off um, in uh, December uh, 1969, so this 50th anniversary <laughs> we're coming back to, it was it was uh, something that was decided by the uh, heads of state and government meeting in a summit, which was a very unusual. Thing then you didn't have a European Council, uh, and you didn't have those kind of gatherings every five minutes, uh, which you uh, appear or it's sometimes seen is the case uh, now. And this was also, of course, a moment in which the uh, the European integration process was was about to uh, embark on a significant challenge, which was the enlargement or the widening uh, of of European uh, integration. So to take on board for you know the first time what arguably has been its sort of major organisational uh, and political cultural uh, adjustment challenge, which is, you know, how do you bring other states in and then how do you get other states to, to play uh, by the rules and all be socialised uh, uh, to, to the system. So, you know, it's interesting that it was at, at that moment there was the sort of collective decision taken to basically ask foreign ministers to go away and look at, you know, uh, have a look at the idea that the, the EU might, um, or the, the community, European Economic Community or the communities then uh, might do foreign policy uh, cooperation. Note the member state foreign ministries, not the Commission, uh, for the reasons that uh, Ben has illustrated uh, or, uh, very, very uh, clearly. But crucially, you know, that, uh, that injunction to go away and do that uh, and, and what resulted in something called the Davignon Report was, was founded on the idea that the reason for doing foreign policy uh, cooperation, uh, political cooperation, as it became European political cooperation, was that it was a component of a strategy for enhanced political unification. So right from the start, you know, building a collective foreign policy was uh, an intensely political act and was intended to serve uh, this purpose, a point which is sometimes lost in Anglo-Saxon commentary, uh, and I would say also perhaps sometimes lost in sort of British understanding of of how foreign policy cooperation sort of fits uh, within uh, the sort of universe uh, of, of, uh, of EU uh, uh, ambition. And what's interesting, if you, if you kind of go back to the creation, um, is how much of the stuff that was relevant then and how much of the architecture that was created at that time uh, is still existent. And I'll come back to that point uh, uh, in a moment. But... I think it's also that um, 
at that creation or at that foundation. It also set the, the train tracks or the tram tracks for a lot of first order concerns within European foreign policy making ever since. There's always been, you know, the kind of rhetorical ambition, there's always been the sense that it's there to serve uh, a, a, a sort of political project. But it's also been very marked by a deep concern with procedure and process. And that's been, was, you know, remarked on mm -hmm. by the sort of early scholars uh, of the process. But that's always been integral to thinking about uh, foreign policy uh, for the EU. Mm -hmm. And it's also been very concerned with uh, the future and the setting of expectations and the building of capabilities, a very sort of teleological approach uh, to, to building foreign policy. And I think that's one of the things to add to, to Ben's list that make, to me makes it very distinctive you know, and unusual from what you tend to get uh, in, uh, in, in a, in a uh, nation state or in a member state. And it's really striking how much, how much old code uh, from the beginning is still there and underpins the system. So. Uh, you know, the political committee was there at the creation with its working groups. Foreign ministers were there as central to the process. Um, the European Council, as and when was needed, but wasn't the central locus at that time for foreign policy making. Bit more relaxed attitude towards foreign policy making. You know, they were going to meet every six months. Uh, you know, <laughs> foreign policy only happens every six months. But, uh, you know, the, the role of the Commission was there to be instructed by uh, foreign, uh, the foreign ministers when it might thought to be useful. And there was also, right back in the beginning, the idea that you needed to go and talk to the European Parliament. Uh, not to consult, uh, but mm -hmm. to inform. And obviously things have have changed there uh, across time. Probably the most significant change across time has been the demise of the, the presidency, the six-monthly rotating presidency within the, uh, within the system, the foreign policy-making system. Arguably, that's had the most detrimental effect uh, on uh, EU foreign policy-making. Some, something uh, I think it would be nice to come back to in the, uh, in the second uh, part uh, of our discussion, you know, where the Lisbon, the Lisbon Treaty has been. Uh, uh, had a negative effect, but but on the on the achievements, you know, the exam, one of the one of the, the two part exam question that was, was posed to us. I mean, the striking thing for me about uh, EU foreign policy is how it's become so normal to talk about European foreign policy or EU foreign policy. I mean, it's an extraordinary idea, isn't it, that you have this sort of search for commonality across, uh, as as Alexander said, you know, a very diverse group of states that share geography, but arguably not much else, perhaps in terms of their. Uh, history, their strategic uh, culture, uh, and so on and so on, which have given them quite different uh, interests. And also, I would say, uh, as, a, as a sort of sidebar point, it's striking how important foreign policy has been to, uh, or is to, contemporary EU studies. There is arguably mm -hmm. far more <laughs> written on EU foreign policy than there is EU foreign policy. Um, but um, I, I've tended to think about uh, EU foreign policy is, is not unlike, or the process of building EU foreign policy is not unlike the process of young children playing with Lego. Those of you who have children this may be familiar with, uh, you may, may be familiar with this. I mean, essentially, you buy children uh, a box of Lego, um, which has a wonderful photograph on the front of what you can play with it. And, and what kids will often do is just stick it all together to make some big amorphous mass that looks like absolutely nothing. Um, and that's, I think, where you had for a long time in European foreign policy. There was a kind of additionality. You kept adding and adding and adding. And there was European foreign policy for almost everything without necessarily building it 
uh, to a design, and it's still relatively recently, European security strategy, EU global strategy, and so on, that, if you like, the instructions have, have come along uh, with the box. But to sort of pursue this metaphor, I kind of worry now that uh, the EU foreign policy is so over-engineered, there's so many specialist parts, that leads to a bit of loss of imagination uh, in the foreign policy process. Again, something I'll come back to uh, a, bit, uh, a bit later. So, what have been the, what's been the record of achievement, you know, to pass over 50 years very, very swiftly? I mean, to, to reinforce some of the points that have been made already, one is this reflex, this reflex of cooperation, um, which I think is a, is a core and central idea, but also has had, again, I think, uh, you know, to put Alexander and Ben's points together on this, that it is there and it's the core of what the activity is, but there has been uh, defection uh, and there are defectors uh, from the process, and clearly some member states... Uh, found it more difficult to live with the system than others and, uh, and some member states have thought about it more as a place to upload uh, rather than somewhere to download uh, from. Second important point, and, and, and I don't think this should be lost, uh, is despite the high degree of institutionalisation, I think there have been significant efficiency gains across time. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, appreciated from a place like the, uh, the PSC, you know, where, you know, intuitively you've kind of got a sense of where member states stand on any one issue which wasn't there in the past. I mean there was not the kind of institutional memory, there wasn't the infrastructure to support or to hang on to that. And alongside that, I think you've got in effect now a sort of portfolio uh, of EU uh, foreign policy. Uh, you know, the, if you like you know, the bricks are put in put, put in uh, structure or, or in ways that they've got recognisable forms. And the EU's tried all sorts of interesting things at this time. Common strategies it had for a while, joint actions, common business, all sorts of ways to try and, you know, take what were sort of collective agreements, put those into, into a sort of substantive bit of policy and then add to it. Um, and, and some have worked, uh, uh, some haven't. But what's endured across time has been this, this consultation uh, mechanism. Uh, the other key component is, again, you know, looked across time is the, the huge array of instruments that are there to give effect to foreign policy. At the start, I mean, it was pretty much left to the presidency uh, to, to sort of do foreign policy. And, of course, absolutely crucially to the member states. I mean, this is a cru crucial part of the, the system. It only works if member states take back home and do uh, the commitments or follow the commitments that they've, uh, they've entered into. But you had, you know, using sanctions, you know, as early, early on as an instrument, you know, leveraging the economic strengths uh, of the EU or market power, if you like, uh, to uh, the EU's capacity for, um, uh, or seeking to use that as to, to have influence. You know, I had a high, you know, high rep. We've got a high rep with Maastricht, uh, uh, Amsterdam rather. We've got special representatives, external action service. Absolutely crucially, I don't think we've touched on this so far as being the, what was the uh, ESDI became the ESDP and is now the CSDP. Uh, you know, a whole series of ways in which you might, you know, look at individual member states and you think, you know, how could they acquiesce to the idea of talking about defence in an EU context which was taboo uh, and now uh, they appear to feel comfortable uh, with and even now have set themselves some pretty extraordinary uh, ambitions, you know, considered uh, against the kind of things they felt uncomfortable with in the past. But I think there are also some things which have stayed which are weaknesses uh, in the system and, and weaknesses that continue to endure. One is that establishing a lead on key foreign policy issues within the West, if you like, or even more broadly within international relations, is, is still pretty tricky uh, for the EU. Partly um, you know, for that reason of talking to one another, but also the kind of things that want to lead off 
in your classic foreign policy issues. I think entirely different in environment and other uh, development policy in other areas. Um, a point I'll come back to when I conclude in this, uh, this sort of part of my remarks. Second is a really slow response to foreign policy crises. Crises are still really difficult um, for the system uh, to cope with uh, and to and to respond uh, to. And we've obviously had an example of that uh, just uh, just recently. Uh, and also the the implementation of of CFSP. Now there is a an EU diplomatic infrastructure, but there is still the prospect for defection uh, on the part of member states, and there is still the possibility of lowest common denominator uh, outcomes, and sometimes those are rather more apparent, I think, than probably uh, would be would be good uh, for uh, for the collective. Um, so I think I'm probably I'm probably more than uh, violated my time, but I still have this question to answer: is whether the the EU is a is a peculiar foreign policy uh, foreign policy actor? Yes, it is, but does it matter? Um, and does it matter because there's this duality that's already been touched on? On one, you know, a core function of the system is to the search for consensus on the part of a group of 28 uh, countries. So it's a reasonably efficient system uh, for exchange of ideas and, and, and sense testing uh, as to what your neighbours uh, think and want to do uh, on a foreign policy issue. And we're about to see an example of a member state which is going to try and do its foreign policy in Europe differently. And it will be interesting to see uh, whether that works and whether that has a gain uh, for uh, the state concern. But lastly, I think you know the striking thing for me across time is how far uh, that uh, the the, nat the changing nature of foreign policy itself has moved much more onto the terrain that's much more suitable for the EU foreign economic policy, uh, international environmental uh, policy, geoeconomics uh, as important uh, as as geopolitics, uh, and so on and so on. So you know, almost by uh, staying still. Uh, if you like, the EU in terms of how it has defined foreign policy, and of course it, it hasn't because it now talks in terms of external action. You know, the world around it has changed in such a way that the challenge is probably still the original challenge, which is how do you bring to bear the collective capabilities of the member states in a way that gives you a meaningful ability to, uh, to set the agenda and to sort of shape things in a way that would be good uh, uh, collectively. Uh, but it's now formidably complicated in, in terms of trying to bring all of those issues mm. within a system which, as I say, uh, still bears the imprint uh, of, uh, of uh, a sort of 50, uh, 50, uh, 50 years ago uh, and the structures of 50 years ago. So mm. thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, listening to all three of you, it seems that you are very much in agreement in terms of where we are now. That it's more of a system than a quick, efficient actor. And I guess we could also say if we would design a foreign policy actor from scratch, we wouldn't choose <laughs> the European Foreign Policy Corporation uh, necessarily. But I think also interesting this, that it's still useful also to have this peculiarity, to draw the member states together and having this platform for dialogue, information, that hopefully then also gives us a sense of when we look at the world, we see the same things more than in the past. So I think that that was really one of, of the common themes. At the same time, of course, this question, well, we see more institutionalization, but how much can that really change the identity of the European foreign policy? Or should we not more, much more emphasize it's a system for cooperation? So actually, what we can expect is different from, from other international actors. And that's also how I want to, to actually start 
the second round. Um, and if you agree, maybe we can keep to five minutes per person so that we can also then really open up, up for, for questions uh, and comments. And I want to start the second round really with this idea of, you know, so looking forward, also a, bit, a little bit what you said, you know. Yes, so the EU is peculiar. And sometimes you have the impression it tries very much to be traditional, although it is not traditional, whatever we mean with traditional. But maybe that's the wrong way. Maybe being different is actually good in this changing environment. So is the EU maybe fit for purpose more than we would think it is? And um, I was very much reminded here, again, of two of two speeches. On the one hand, again, we had Mogherini on Tuesday, who was talking a lot about managing expectations, that maybe we should be careful of not expecting you to be this efficient, strategic, fast-moving entity, because it is not. But she, I think, very much played with this idea that you should know when it can have an impact, and when it can't, it should just, you know, wait for the right moment. So she, I think, emphasized very much these this nuances in when you should act and when not. Whereas, at the same time, when I remember Borrell's um, talk in the European Parliament, so when he had the hearing in the European Parliament, he talked a lot about power and the European Union now having to play power politics, which I think is a kind of a different concept from what Mogherini actually was emphasizing. So I, I want to throw this question out there. So, you know, now looking forward, do we think the EU is actually fit for purpose and where would you situate it in the mogherini borrell perspective? of the world then. Oh no, sorry, Alexander. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So try to be short that we yeah. have more time for... Um, so it's an interesting uh, transition moment now from Mogherini to the new high representative. I think you, 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 can, you can say that under Ashton, um, immediately after the Lisbon Treaty, it was in a sort of experimental way it was set up. Uh, external action service uh, with, uh, with with that system. Her achievement is that it was started, it was set up. I think under Mogherini, one could say, or I would say that the external action service has been professionalized. I think it's uh, really full of extremely good uh, experts. I think it's a quite a good communication appearance as well. There's more of a uh, Mogherini is the EU voice on foreign policy than maybe was the case before. Um, but of course there is um, uh, EU foreign policy is essentially what member states allow it to be. Uh, and I think that's a sort of big misconception in the public domain when people complain about the inefficiency, they blame uh, the institutions, they blame uh, Mogherini, whereas in reality it's the member states that cannot agree. So this is of course a, a fundamental issue. To say is the EU fit for purpose, you always have to ask the question, do the member states permit it to be? And I think that, that, is, that, is, that is where we are. If we go back to 2003, there was an EU strategy on foreign and security policy which was over-exuberant, basically the underlying notion, everybody wants to be like us, this is great. In 2016, there was another EU strategy with, which, of course, uh, takes into account the big challenges, the financial uh, uh, crisis and all of this, was much less self-confident. And I think this is, this is where we are. If we go from Mogherini to Borrell, I think what has to be improved is um, the, the, the interface between the institution and, 
and member states. The ownership of member states have to feel that they own the foreign policy more than they do now, but at the same time member states have to allow it to happen as well, which of course goes back to what we said before, that the EU is a very homogenous at the end of the day, still, uh, there's a lot of inhomogeneity built in, which makes it often very difficult to come to uh, common positions which then allow um, uh, common foreign security policy. Uh, I would say the institutions as such is not the problem. I think it's very good. We have a global system, a global diplomatic system of EU diplomats, usually together with member states. In many uh, third countries we have an EU uh, delegation and we have 20 plus <coughs> member states there. So we have the instruments to really implement an effective foreign and security policy. The problem is on the ownership side. So the focus of our work is very, very much on agreeing on the positions, which is a very, very laborsome process, and we are still extremely weak, I think, on the implementation of the position. So we fight in the political and security committee at the council to get a common position and then we have a piece of paper and we go home and think the work is done and we've achieved anything. But at the end of the day we've only got a piece of paper. We haven't actually done anything in the implementation. So the challenge for Borrell, the, the, the sort of third term after Lisbon Treaty, must be on that. I think that is, that is we must get a lot better to, to implement the common positions, they have to become much more an integral part of the foreign policy of member states and then working in unison with the institutions in capitals, in Brussels and in third countries and then we have the financial means to do it, but there is still a lot of uh, um, uh, room for improvement, let's put it that, that way. Clearly um, the question was if, if, the, if, the, if the system uh, can the EU deliver? Um, if yes, what advantages should the Europeans be aware of? I think it must be absolutely clear that there is no challenge that out there today in foreign and security policy where going alone is easier than doing it together. And in my personal opinion, this is something the UK will, will find out in a, in a painful way if Brexit actually happens. Uh, but uh, um, so the advantage is it should be the time for EU foreign and security policy because the challenges are so clear and because we are in danger of being ground up by Washington, which we have to acknowledge now is no longer a benevolent uh, supporter of further EU uh, integration by Moscow and now by China as well. And if the EU doesn't hold it together, we will essentially not be able to, to, to deal with these uh, challenges. Um, then there are of course many, many other threats. There are also internal threats and I think the, the, the rise of anti-globalization sentiments, populist sentiments within our own member states which undermine the fundamental premise for an EU foreign and security policy I think is a very, very big threat which is, which is, which is important. And then lastly, the sort of what sort of recommendations uh, could, could be done. There's much talk now about qualified majority voting, which is a hotly debated issue. Uh, small member states like mine are very concerned about that because we feel we'll, we'll be steamrolled. Uh, uh, but it's an important issue because we see, unfortunately, 
with some of the domestic political dynamics in member states, we see much more a trend towards brinkmanship in the decision-making, towards using the consensus rule as a veto uh, method. And, of course, if that happens, if it happens once or twice, it's okay, but if it becomes a rule, it actually completely undermines. It's the end of common foreign security policy. So the idea of qualified majority voting, I understand as a way to safeguard actually the way of being able to work together. But more important, I would say, really, and that's really based on, on my own experience in the last uh, three and a half years, is this lack of ownership. Uh, and and, and, and uh, there, is, there, is, uh, um, uh, there is still the tendency that Brussels is a convenient scapegoat to blame for everything that's unpopular, but member states very frequently um, don't tell uh, in their own countries of the advantages. The politicians often don't do that. They miscommunicate. Um, there is less of a less of a feeling that, or there is not sufficient feeling that is that this is actually our foreign policy. Very frequently, I had the impression that foreign ministers go to Brussels because they have to and they have this exchange of views, but then they actually don't go home themselves with the feeling we've actually achieved, we've defined our own foreign policy and this is what I'm going to do now. So this is something that really has to, has to improve. And as I said, uh, um, uh, that, and that pro probably goes beyond the scope of this discussion, but to actually, I mean, where does foreign policy happen? It doesn't, of course, really happen in Brussels. It should happen vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the world. So how do we actually perform in Africa, in Asia, in these places? There's, there, there's a lot that can be improved. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, thank you very much. So on the one hand, this idea from paper to action. So maybe it's yeah. not good enough to push paper in Brussels, but we have to get the capitals to take action. So that goes a bit in your policy implementation direction, I think. But at the same time, bringing the enthusiasm for foreign policy back to the capitals. And again, I think many of us keep talking about this idea that foreign ministers are losing action in terms of authority or in terms of being considered salient in the national political system. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a wider discussion yeah. to be had. Maybe we have to get more attention that foreign policy matters, although even if you don't win votes with it. Ben, yeah. your take of what can we fix and is there something to fix? Thank you very much. Um, I think there's a, there's a certain tension in your question in terms of is the EU fit for purpose because the question one has to ask is well, what's the purpose? Um, and I think there's still ambivalence surrounding that question. Um, and there's partly ambivalence because amongst the member states I think we start from a position where strategic cultures in member states differ quite profoundly. I mean the strategic perspective of a Finland versus a Greece versus a France. I mean there, there, there are huge gaps there. And we've only been working on this. I mean CSDP, Richard was saying, you know, ESDI, ESDP, now CSDP, I mean, these, these are relatively recent innovations and, and coming to a common strategic culture I think is still, is still a major goal that's on the horizon. Um, the other point I'd pick up in terms of whether the EU is fit for purpose um, amplifies a point that, uh, that Alexander has made and that is, and I will go a little bit further than him, I would say that member states promise that which they will not deliver. <laughs> And that's a pretty profound thing to bear in mind. They promise a coherent and effective 
foreign policy on the part of the European Union, and yet they will not give the Union the tools, the wherewithal, um, and, and the capacity to execute such a thing. So that, that the focus, I think, on, on, on ownership and on, and on domestic legitimization, I think, is really, really important. I think a more critical point on part of the European Union is that we're, I think we're still chasing a Westphalian mirage. You know, we have an ersatz foreign minister who's not called a foreign minister. We have an ersatz diplomatic service not called a diplomatic service. Now we're working in an ersatz army that's never going to be an army. When will we give that up? It's a genuine, genuine problem because the expectations that sets up in the minds not only of our own citizens but also in terms of Europe's adversaries are unattainable on the part of the European The European Union does not defend itself. The European Union does not defend its own member states. What kind of defense actor is it that doesn't defend itself or its member states? And I think that's something we have to, we have to bear in mind. Um, you know, to take an eagle uh, and to teach it to quack and teach it to waddle does not make it a duck. <laughs> and that's where I would differ very profoundly with Mr. Borrell. I mean, for him to say that the European Union should speak the language of power you know, we, don't, we can't translate that in European ease. The language of power is not what we employ amongst ourselves. Now, obviously we can have a conversation about how power dynamics work and where power plays, etc. But it doesn't come naturally to the Union uh, as an actor and as an entity. Um, in terms of advantages and, and, and weaknesses and where do we go from here, I mean, I think you know, the first thing we have to acknowledge and, and to bear in mind is you know, the European Union is ill-suited to 19th century geopolitical games. It's just not our emetier. Um, I think if you were to get engaged with some of your colleagues, perhaps in history, um, it would be a fascinating exercise to ask a very critical question. You know, did the European Union miss its historical moment? You know, the post-Cold War era. You know, we were the poster child, are the poster child of globalization and multilateralism. We had that moment in our grasp, and it's gone. What happened? Why? What role did the European Union play in not fulfilling? its potential to deliver a global multilateral system when that was literally on the table. You know, was it a unique Anglo-American infection of populism or what else was it that has, that has, that has spiked our guns, as it were? Um, in terms of, the, in terms of the, the, the positives, I mean, I think the Union has a very deep foreign policy toolbox. It has many things that it can bring to bear to address long-run problems in terms, of, in terms of foreign policy and in terms of security. It has very unique governance structures, a very unique historical experience that it can bring to bear on comparable issues in comparable regions with comparable problems. Um, and for me, and here, here I am, but I mean, for me, I think the fundamental thing comes back to this sense of unique European values. Um, I'm not going to use the N-word in this context, but I think the, the, the V-word, the values word, normative was the N-word, by the way, um, the V-word, the values thing, I think is really important. Um, I was there, um, very fortunate to be there when, uh, when uh, Mogherini launched the, the, the global strategy, and you know, she pointed out right up top, she said the European Union faces existential challenges at home and abroad. And she didn't put a tooth in it. The existential challenges at home are profound. You know, we have tools to deal with cases such as Hungary and Poland. We have been ambivalent in the application of those tools. If we fail that test, what possible hope is there for the European Union to pursue that externally? There is none. And if the Union doesn't remain true to those core normative values, what the hell is it? Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben.
Richard. Uh, you know me? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, thinking, yeah, the, the, I'm the only thing that stands between you and people venting their spleen. Uh, so uh, I'll do my best to be, to be brief. I mean, I think one of the striking things is that you know, having had that normative aspiration uh, to have a foreign policy, the EU's now got a foreign policy, and the question is, so what do you do with it? Now you've got it. Uh, and, and that's, you know, to me, the kind of the challenge, because it's not just about, you know, having realised the aspiration of having, but also, I think something to recognise is that the EU is now kind of credentialised in the sense that, uh, you know, there's a recognition that it does have the right to play a role uh, as a foreign policy actor and is accepted to differing degrees in different quarters for doing so. And that's quite a remarkable thing uh, to have happened but have happened alongside the member states also preserving their own capacity to do, uh, uh, to do foreign policy. But clearly, you know, the, the sort of challenge, you know, if you like, having been recognised, uh, having some of the capacity to do uh, foreign policy, is, is how do you deal with, you know, what we might start a sort of post-normative challenge, to use the N-word, which is, you know, preserving the idealism, if you like, which was... Which was there, uh, and and which you know Trump kind of crystallizes for the EU. You know this kind of acute problem, which is you know we'd really uh, much rather the world is rather different from what it is and behaves in all sorts of different ways, because then we can really have the impact that we want to have, and everybody will be more like us, uh, and we won't have the need for foreign policy uh, anymore. Uh, which is you know in many ways at the you know at the heart of a sort of integrative uh, and and sort of uh, world uh, federalist uh, logic, uh, which for many supporters of the idea of uh, EU foreign policy was was a bit of a driver. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I want to make two points. One is to to reinforce the point you know which Ben made much more clearly than me, which is you know the EU has kind of ended up uh, having a foreign policy, you know, some non-traditional foreign policy at the moment in which you know, foreign policies are under or traditional notions of foreign policy are under more stress than at any time previously I mean, both in terms of the way that they've been degraded uh, as an idea, Trump uh, you know, again um, the notion of trust uh, alliances and so on which is pretty integral to foreign policy uh, between allies uh, in particular is all you know, rather uh, up in the air but also the capacity for foreign policy actors to be the the sort of high priests of foreign policy is also gone, consequence of globalisation and all that, the access that we have as citizen diplomats to to think about uh, and want to shape uh, foreign policy. All of that's changed, you know, the sort of capacity uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a system like the EU system to sort of claim for itself some kind of uh, exclusivity or, or some kind of um, uh, some kind of place uh, which um, it can argue for as a consequence of what it represents in terms of a groups, group of countries. So I think and that to me seems a, a pretty profound uh, challenge. Uh, and with all of those, you know, the EU's kind of got two things that, um, two sets of challenges uh, I think in place. One is, is what I call the, the software challenge, which is, you know, what you run in the system, which is the treaties and so on and so on. I mean, can one imagine treaty reform happening? Well, probably not. And if you reform the treaties, in what way would you reform the treaties to get a better foreign policy? Well, it's quite difficult to see ways in which you might. 
um, beyond uh, qualified majority voting, which seems to me to be a sort of cry of desperation rather than a serious proposition for, for building, uh, building foreign policy. Um, but you've also got the kind of, you know, the hardware challenges. I, th I think, you know, kind of the institutional order and the structures that you've got in, in Brussels may well be the end point in terms of the sort of foreign policy foreign policy making system because you've struck a balance between the preservation of the national uh, and you've got mechanisms within Brussels that allow for coordination and you know arguments about more of that what you would put in, Prus in Brussels to make it more uh, more effective uh, seem to me it's quite difficult to see what and how you might do it in ways that you could be reconciled to the member states desire to you know, either to have more of a say uh, or to preserve the, the, the say that they've, they've currently got so uh, you know I've been desperately casting around for thinking about you know what you might reform in the in the in the foreign policy area and I have a I have a modest proposal and this is probably the wrong audience uh, for this but but my modest proposal is that um, that you kind of need something that looks and feels like PESCO for foreign policy. Now, for the cognoscenti, you know, PESCO is this idea that member states have to pull and share what they've got nationally uh, in the defence area and to try and think much more about the ways in which they can use that or, or organise uh, what they do more efficiently for the collective good, meaning for the EU good. And I think you probably something similar for that in the foreign policy area. There are little bits of that where you get, you know, sharing of infrastructure uh, and so on. But there are clearly some areas in which some member states care an awful lot about countries, regions uh, and issues. Um, uh, and uh, they probably wouldn't like the idea of pooling. But there are some areas where they probably care a bit less uh, and they already uh, let the, the EU uh, take, uh, uh, take the lead. Uh, and you can imagine that it might be possible, not for all member states in all circumstances, to think about ways in which you might <coughs> circumvent or short circuit what is uh, a, a key part of the system, which is everybody has to ever say, and everybody has to ever say in a way that's often detrimental to uh, the sort of collective implementation of whatever uh, uh, the system uh, the, uh, the system is. So um, I uh, will be tweeting my ideas to the new high rep um, to, to make sure that uh, he thinks this is an absolutely uh, fantastic uh, idea that should be uh, should be uh, taken on board. But more seriously, as I say, I think you know we've kind of you know having gone on this, we've kind of maxed out. I think in terms of in terms of what we've got, and it's really difficult to think about ways uh, in which you could actually uh, amend uh, or reform uh, that would uh, you know, sort of solve uh, some of the problems that we've been that we've been talking about. So thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, so maybe just to give us three keywords to summarise a bit the discussion. So on the one hand, this this big emphasis on member states. We have to get them excited again and to make them deliver of what they sometimes promise in Brussels. So also echo a bit what Ben was saying. Then it's called for where are our values? And also I think very interesting this this link between inside and outside, you know. Can we be serious in promoting values abroad? if we don't safeguard them at home, even if it hurts to a certain extent. And then also this idea of, well, maybe institutional reforms are nice, but maybe we hit the ceiling. And maybe we shouldn't pretend that with coordination we can replace a centralization. And maybe we should also go the other way and actually allow more flexibility. So I think there's sometimes this talk of these mini-groups where sometimes it feels a bit that those who want a strong foreign policy are afraid of that it's not together then anymore. But maybe we, ha we can actually say, no, maybe it's okay that sometimes it's four member states <coughs> focusing on something instead of everyone, if they then deliver 
much more excited. I hope we, uh, you agree with me that there's a lot to think about, a lot to talk about, but I think it's time to say, okay, maybe enough for today. For the rest, thank you so much for staying with us, for engaging with us, for I think also giving us a lot to think about. Uh, again, I want to thank the European Studies Centre for hosting us, and please join me in thanking our three speakers for really dragging us.